right, you can open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, and we're starting a new series on the parables. You know, that, that video really did a good job of capturing the power of stories. I've come to find with children, for example, you, you don't have to teach a child to love stories. They, they just get it. Uh, you're, you're putting your child down to bed at night, right? What do they ask for? They don't say, Mommy, Daddy, could you tell me what you were watching on CNN or Fox News tonight? And if they do ask that question, then you know where your uh, problems are right now, right? They don't, they don't say, you know, Mommy and Daddy, I'd love it if you would pull out the encyclopedia. I am just dying to know the total population of Uzbekistan. No, children say, tell me a story. Tell me a story about your childhood, Daddy. Tell me a story about something that is important to you. That is because stories are inherently interesting. They entertain us, they inform us, they motivate us. Now Jesus, to be precise, he didn't just tell stories, but as we saw, he told parables. Uh, the Greek word is parabole. That's where we get the word parable from. It actually comes from a Hebrew idea called mashal. The, the Hebrew meaning of that, that word was basically an elusive narrative which is told for an ulterior purpose. So let me just make that a little more clear for you. It's indirect communication, something that New Englanders really don't get, right? We're direct communication. I'm telling you exactly what I think, what's on my mind right now. Klein Snodgrass said that people set their defenses up against direct communication. Think about the story of Nathan the prophet coming in to confront King David when he had sinned with Bathsheba. Imagine if Nathan was a New Englander. He walks into this situation, the throne room of the king, and he says, you're a horrible sinner. I know exactly what you did. You need to repent. He doesn't do that. He says, David, let me tell you a story about a very rich man who was very cruel to a very poor man. And after telling him this story, David's heart is wide open to receive the, the knowledge that he was that man. You know, that's what indirect communication can do. It, it finds a back window into the human heart to challenge us. Now, why would Jesus need to do this? Well, I would suggest to you that Jesus came into the world with a life-altering message. The kingdom of God intersecting human history, God on the move. But the problem with people was people, they had already had their minds made up. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, I mean, they already knew everything. The common people, they had their own guards up. And I'm willing to suggest that we're probably not that different it's hard to move when the concrete has already set. But Jesus' parables, if you listen to them, really listen to them, they will provide you with fresh perspective that will find their way in through the cracks. And as he does that, 
He'll tell you new stories or new ideas about who God is and what God's like and who you are and what you could and should become. That's why we need to hear the parables. And I hope that as we go through this series, we're going to be looking at seven parables from the Gospel of Luke, that God's Word will. It will find its way in through the cracks of your hearts, open your eyes, challenge you so that you will move towards life-giving action with His Word. So we're going to start off with the parable about the parables. This is the parable of the sower, and it's Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. So let's read the text. And when a crowd was gathered, gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. And some fell in good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So I want to ask you a question, and I believe this is the most spiritual question, important spiritual question that you can be asked apart from have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you ready for the question? When was the last time you had your ears examined? Are your ears full of wax? How is your hearing? Do you need to take some Allegra D because your allergies are clogging your ears right now? Now, Katie suggests that I need to have my ears examined. How about you? Normally speaking, when you look at a parable, you're going to look at the last few verses of the parable. The principle is that it's called in-point stress. The meaning or the, the point of the parable is delivered at the end. However, here in this parable, the parable of the sower, it's right in the middle. And this middle portion of the text is the crux of understanding this parable, but not only this parable, all of the parables. Essentially, if you don't get this, if you don't 
get what Jesus is saying here, you're not going to really take to heart what he's saying in all of the other parables. They're just going to be good stories to you. So let's take a look at it. Let me read it slowly for you. Verse 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you... It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So again, listen to that language. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. This is a parable about your ability to listen. He quotes from Isaiah 6. Now some look at the language that Jesus is using here in the middle of this parable and they think that he's essentially saying he's teaching in this way so that people will not repent, not understand, and therefore not be forgiven. But I want to make this emphatically clear. Jesus is not, that's an emphatic not, capital N-O-T not, he's not teaching in parables so that people will not understand. No, He's saying something about his teaching ministry from Isaiah. He wants us to understand that he teaches in parables primarily because that is a prophetic mode of communication. If you look at Matthew 13, for example, he quotes Psalm 78.2, and there Matthew says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will proclaim things hidden from the beginning. If Jesus wanted to hide things from people, he just simply wouldn't have taught. But He wants to show them that he has a prophetic ministry. Even though he was more than a prophet, he certainly was a prophet. He came to announce both the judgment and the deliverance of God. You might remember Isaiah 6 and his call and his commission. The Lord says to the prophet Isaiah, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And you remember what Isaiah's response was? Here I am, send me, which should be the response of every individual who wishes to do the will of God. But remember, the Lord said Isaiah's commission was going to be incredibly difficult. In verses 9 and 10, He says, this will be the mark of Isaiah's ministry. You're going to be preaching to a people who keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You know what the Lord's saying to him? You're going to be preaching to a people who are marked by their rejection. You will preach my words to them, and it's going to feel like as you say these words, their ears are full of wax, they need hearing aids. Now, one commentator says that Jesus taught in this way as a means of irony. It it was like a form of reverse psychology. Essentially, he's saying to these people, I know you're not really going to listen to what I'm about to say, but let me tell you a story. Now, why would he need to teach like this? I want to suggest to you that worldviews settle in deeply upon people. And some people 
cannot hear Jesus because they already know everything. <laughs> Jesus, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. Other people can't hear Jesus because their life is so crowded. There's so many things in their world that they just can't make new space for Jesus. But some people are really listening to him. They're like that boy Samuel who said, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Have you ever said that to the Lord? Because if you haven't, maybe it is time to get your ears checked. And we know what real listening looks like. We know what superficial li listening looks like. You pull out your phone and you're chatting with your spouse. Yes, dear. Mm-hmm. I hear just what you're saying right now. Absolutely, yes. The soccer games and kids and things and such and whatnot. And yeah, I probably should put my phone down and listen to you. And then she stops you in the middle of it and she says, have you even heard one word I've said? Real listening involves eye contact. You're not thinking about what you want to say next. You're processing what they're saying. It's not all about you telling all of your stories. It's about asking good questions of a person. And listening is a gift that you give to another person. Jesus is saying in this first parable, he wants that gift from you. He wants you to hear him. He wants you to listen to him. And now that we understand that, we can actually go into this parable and look at this analogy of farming. He begins this analogy by describing three superficial forms of listening. Now, this farming analogy is very relatable to these people. Wheat was a staple of their diet they knew how it was prepared, they knew the process from start to finish, and they really knew the big point about a harvest, that if you don't get grain, you don't get anything, right? If you don't get fruit, you don't eat. Now, Jesus makes it clear, the seed is the word of God, and the soils are the receptivity of the human heart. So let's look at the first superficial listener. This is the hard heart. Verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. You see, Jesus is warning that the human heart can become compressed and unyielding like a well-worn road. As a person mindlessly or intentionally consumes ideas that are antithetical to God's truth, the worldview ground of the heart grows hard. And it's once this is transpired, he says, Satan then has an easy job in that person's life. He can just kind of insert a thought. You can just dismiss that. That's nothing. You don't need to think about it. In fact, you can live like God doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. I was thinking about this principle recently, and I was stirred by a conversation with George Barna in the Family Research Council. And we know that media is greatly influencing our children today. We know it. Here's the thing about this media culture that is set upon us. 
it, it has changed so quickly. There's been so much media coming in our direction that it is very hard and confusing to navigate. In fact, we live in a time in world history, human history, where more change has set in upon us, more transition, more rapid transition than any other time in human history. So we parents, grandparents, are saying to ourselves, what can we do about all of this? How much media should we guard? What kind of parameters should we set up? What kind of real influence is this media having in their lives? Now, I was startled as I was looking at the number of hours that children are exposed to worldviews that are contrary to the Bible. And you may know this one. They say a child from the time of kindergarten to the 12th grade will spend 16,000 hours in school. But you might not know the, st the statistic about media consumption, which is twice that. 32,000 hours of media they will consume from kindergarten to 12th grade. So do the math real quick. 48,000 hours of worldview that is contrary to the biblical worldview. Do you think that their hearts, by the time they become an adult, is like a well-worn road? Could it have that effect? And let me ask this. Is one hour of church and youth group a week going to do anything to combat that? George Barnes said, the most significant influence on the development of a worldview in America today is what we absorb from media. And this is true of you, mom and dad, and this is true of you, grandpa and grandpa. He goes on to say, and if that's the case, then that says to me as a parent or a grandparent or somebody who cares about the development of the worldview of a child that I've got to pay attention to what media is investing in those children's minds and hearts. So how do we do this? Well, he gives us four practical and memorable M's by which we can apply this. The first M is monitor. Now, you'd be surprised. There are many parents that hand a child a device. The child goes, and they have no idea what they're consuming. We've got to become more intentional with that. The second M is to minimize, because their research shows that in America, the biggest addiction is media. And this should be a self-evident truth at this point. Uh, pull out your cell phone and look, I think you swipe left, and you look at the total number of hours you have spent on this thing this week. Take a look at those hours. See how much media you've consumed. And our kids are like three times more than that, I guarantee you. So minimize it. They know and say that devices are actually hard on kids emotionally. Depression sets in. They become lonely. They don't know how to socialize with other people. Do we, do we let them just kind of mindlessly consume other things that are just bad for them, like junk food? We don't say to our kids, you can eat all the Twinkies you want. I will buy you unlimited Twinkies. Have at it. No, we tell them, you may have some Twinkies sometimes. Well, the same should be true for media, of course. 
The third M is to mediate. We have a powerful tool in our hands with our kids. It's called a remote. You can hit the pause button sometimes when something comes on that's contrary to the worldview of the Bible, and you can say, that's a lie. This is what the Bible says. The fourth M is to moralize. That's right. That's wrong. Our kids need to hear that in order to develop a Christian worldview. You know, the thing that we have to understand about hard hearts is sometimes the ground of the heart needs to be broken up. If it continues to be trampled upon hour after hour, day after day, the seed isn't going to gain purchase. So the only way to break up the ground of the heart is to step in and influence them. And I want to say this to parents again. You're the number one influence in their life. And grandma and grandpa, you're number two. So it's really your capital, our responsibility to navigate these waters with them. Let's look at the shallow heart now, verse 13. Verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, in a time of testing, fall away. Helmut Thielich said this of these rocky soil Christians. He said they are half Christians. They're half Christians. He said, these are the people who have been sown with a thousand seeds, but in whose lives there's no depth and no rootage. So they hear the word of God, and maybe they listen to radio preachers, maybe they come to church from time to time, but the word is not sinking deep into the heart of this person. He goes on to say, it is the half-Christian who always flops in the face of the first catastrophe that happens because they're dry intellectuality. That means that I'm consuming the Bible just for educational purposes. I like to have my mind stimulated, so I read it for that reason. Or there's superficial emotionalism. I come to church because my heart's stirred up. And when I feel that stirring of emotions, it makes me feel good. So that's why I do it. He says, for those reasons, they do not stand the test. It has to run deeper than that. Now listen to this next point he makes very closely. He says, this is the wood from which the anti-Christian is cut to. My generation, the millennial generation, is becoming increasingly aware of this phenomenon where there are these Christian celebrities, these Christian uh, individuals who are coming out and saying, I am deconstructing my faith. I am deconstructing my faith. So you have so-called former Christians who either were worship leaders, pastors, YouTube sensations, whatever they were, who are coming out and saying, after having done this Christian thing, analyzed it for some time, I no longer buy it, I'm out. Can I say this? We have got to stop making Christians celebrities. I think it's a stop. Okay? There's only one individual who deserves preeminence in our heart and in our lives, and his name is Jesus. 
Not Michael Smith, not, and he's a great guy, don't get me wrong, but we need to give him celebrity status. Okay, I'm going to step off my soapbox for a minute here. Helmut Thielich would say of these people, they're not deconstructing their faith. They were never there. They were a half Christian. Christians do not deconstruct their faith. Matthew 10 says this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. A true believer remains with Jesus through it all. And that's what he says there in John 10. We move to the third soil condition, the crowded heart. Verse 14, And as for what fell among the thorns, these are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus comes right back at him and he cites a couple of the laws of the Old Testament. And the rich young ruler in a proud, arrogant fashion says, yes, I've kept all of those from my youth. So then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He says, great, sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor and follow me. Now, He did not ask all of his followers to engage in that exercise, did he? No, he specifically said that to the rich young ruler because that was the roadblock in his heart to genuine real faith. That thing needed to be smashed. Jesus knew that he was going to love his wealth and his status more than him. What does the Bible say? He walked away And he was sad because he was exceedingly rich. And Jesus said, how hard is it for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God? You see, stuff, possessions, materials, they get many, many, many people off track from truly placing their faith in Jesus. The the keeping up with the Joneses mentality sets in. You know what that is? That's buying stuff that you don't need to impress people you don't like with money you don't have. And that's dangerous for your soul. So, if you have that roadblock in your life, the only way to get rid of that roadblock is to smash it. Some of you actually need to sell possessions. That would be the only way for you to let go of that idolatry and see Jesus for who he is. Your Lord, your Savior, deserving of your time, your talent, and your treasures. All that you are. He wants you to be a captured individual for him. So what does real listening look like? Well, look with me at verse 15. He says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Jesus is saying that the true disciple craves to know the word of God. Now look at verse 10 again. Here Jesus said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Again, He's not, emphatic not, saying that God's intentionally hiding his word. 
the, the whole point of this parable we see uh, is that God is freely distributing his word. As you look at the sower and you look at farm, you know, know-how and that kind of stuff, this sower is somewhat carelessly telecasting the seed everywhere. I mean, the seed's hitting the road, the seed's hitting places where thorns are, the seed's hitting places where there's rock under the soil. He's just like willy-nilly throwing this stuff about, which tells us something about God. God spreads his word broadly, not just to the places that are receptive. So what does he mean when he says the secret of the kingdom of God? Well, that word secret is the Greek word mysterion, and it describes revelation. Revelation means that God reveals something about himself that we didn't know before. Let me give you a perfect example of what revelation looks like. I'm about to reveal something about me to you. Are you ready? You might know this, you might not. My middle name is Garrett. My middle name is Garrett. And that's not a secret. You, you could look that up. You could be aware of that. But if I didn't tell you that before, this might be the first time you're hearing it. Now, how can we know anything about God if he doesn't reveal it? I mean, he's the God of the universe. He's infinitely above us. He's holy and he's distinct. Can I just like find my way into knowing the depths and riches of God on my own? Of course not. One of the principles we have to understand about Revelation is that it must be received. And the true disciple craves the revelation of God. They crave it. That's why the disciples get the inside scoop. It's not because God wishes to withhold. It's because they want to know. The other soil rejects, doesn't listen. Their hearts are hard, shallow, crowded. The word of God is made available to them, but it can't penetrate that kind of soil because there are things that are an obstacle to the word of God. Now, according to the scriptures, there's one and one only telltale sign that someone's listening to God. It's that person who receives the truth and acts upon it. And Jesus says that the person who receives the truth and acts upon it, to them more of the truth will be given. Whereas the person that rejects the truth, eventually the little truth that they have will ultimately be taken away. And this, of course, parallels with realities of life. For example, if you don't use your muscles ever, what happens to them? They deteriorate, you get wimpy right? What if you don't, you know, read your books, and kids, I want you to listen, do your homework. Well, you lose your mental faculties, right? They, they just don't stay as strong. You used to be a boss at Sudoku, and now you really struggle with one Sudoku puzzle. That's what ends up happening. So the principle that we see here with the Word of God is then this, use it or lose it. Or more exactly, do it or lose it. That's what bearing fruit means. Bearing fruit means applying the word of God. So if God's word says, save all forms of physical intimacy for the marriage bed, listen by doing it. 
If he says to kids, kids, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment that comes with a promise that it might go well with you and that you might live long in the land. Do it. If he says to you, do not store up treasures on earth. Don't make life all about the material possessions that you're collecting here, but rather be rich towards the kingdom of God. Do it. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Or is there someone that you need to apologize to? Is there a person that God's been laying on your heart that's in your sphere of influence that if you don't tell them about Jesus, who will tell them about Jesus? Do it. It's no different than the principle that Harry taught us in James chapter 1. Remember James 1, 22? Be what? Doers of the word, not just hearers, deceiving yourselves. Are you really listening to him? Or is it more like this? Jesus, yes, I know what your word says. Mm-hmm. Or does he have your full attention? You see, as you leave church today, I want you to go out and look at the tree over here. Now, Paul Chesbro in the first service told me that I called it the wrong name for the type of tree that it was. I called it a sycamore tree. And he said, came up to me and he's like, Pasta, it was a really good sermon, but I got to correct you on one point. And that's something else. I can't even remember what he said. <laughs> I wasn't listening. I was looking at my cell phone. Look at that tree, though, and let that be a parable to you. I want to suggest that we all want lives that are strong and fortified and stable like that tree. You want that. And I want to suggest that you can't become a tree like that unless your life is spiritually robust. Look at a tree like that and know that as tall as that tree is, there's a taproot that runs down just as far. Some of us think that we can become like that in life without really sinking our roots down spiritually. You can't. You have to have that taproot. It has to go way down deep, penetrate to the depths of Christ, where you receive your nutrients, where you receive the water and vitality of life. Everything that you are comes from that taproot. You know what happens if you don't sink your roots down deep? You become a bramble bush. You go out, and it's the type of stuff where we go out and put our gloves on and our long sleeve shirts. We buy extra bottles of tech new, you know, all that poison ivy everywhere, and we try to just rip it out of the ground because it's really just good for nothing. Uh, it's, it's like Christians who are online and they're throwing out all this weird garbage that's platitudinal and means nothing to anyone. It's just like poison ivy everywhere. But the Christian who sunk their roots down deep loves people and cares for them and wants to see the kingdom of God advance. And it's far more important to them to love the people than to get their point across. So go deep. Look at the tree today. Let it be a parable to your heart. Let's pray. Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. Your faithfulness extends to every generation as enduring as the earth you created. 
Your regulations remain true to this day, for everything serves your plans. If your instructions hadn't sustained me with joy, I would have died in my misery. I will never forget your commandments, for by them you give me life. I am yours. Rescue me. For I have worked hard at obeying your commandments. Lord, we want that parable to sink down into the depths of the soil of the heart this morning. Lord, I don't want to just be a deep Christian for myself. I want to be a deep Christian for the sake of this world that's lost. I know, Lord, that my home will only be as deep as I am. My church, only as deep as I choose to be. My community will only receive more of Christ when I choose to sink my roots deep into the soil of Christ. Lord, what I'm saying is that this all begins with me. And if I'm not growing, how can I help anyone else? So I pray that we as a church would grow to be a people of depth. And that as we grow deep, we would also grow wide. That you'd put people in our path that we can influence for the sake of the kingdom. That we would be, as we've been praying about, transformative leaders. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.